Morning. Well, now I don't have to shout. Gotta love the snow. Does everybody love shoveling? Good. I've heard lots of stories about shoveling so far. I love it. I think that this snow has been absolutely beautiful. Um, And I know that it's not just me who thinks this. Um, Meg and the girls were out walking in the woods just back here the other day and was with Sierra. He's right there. And Sierra apparently said to Meg, it's so beautiful I could cry. That's my girl. (laughs) I love it. Anyway, it's a beautiful thing. So, today we are in the book of Mark, once again, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and we're looking at the transfiguration. Transfiguration, that's a strange word. So that simply just means uh, to be changed, to be transformed, to go from, to appear as one thing and then another. So that's what the word transfiguration means. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Peter's confession, confessing Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter truly confessed Jesus as Messiah. Faith was springing up, but he wasn't seeing very clearly. His understanding was was still incomplete because he was wrapped up in this militant messianic fervor of the day. So he was truly seeing, but he was not seeing clearly. And immediately following Peter's confession, which we saw last week, Jesus dives into what being the Messiah actually means. Messiah must suffer and die. Jesus' path was a path of death. And he totally upends the perceptions of the day, of what Messiahship means. And then he takes it a step farther. Jesus took it a step farther, and he said, if you want to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, this path of suffering and death is yours as well. Their commitment to Christ, our commitment to Christ, is a commitment to the cross. His cross, our cross. And so I encourage you, if you have not listened to those past two messages, go online, go to the new website, and listen to them. Uh, Those two, and today, are the transition of the book of Mark, and everything Hinging on Peter's confession, everything changes in the book of Mark. So I really encourage you to go listen to them if you have not already. So unlike Peter's perspective that Messiah would come and overthrow Rome and and achieve victory, Jesus knew God's plan was that through death, victory would come. Through suffering, victory Likewise, the same for the disciples. Through suffering, through dying to yourself, through self-denial, they would overcome this world and come to victory, salvation. To all have overcome the world, the gift of salvation is granted. So he's painting a picture of himself that's full of humility, full of sacrifice, and he's, dis- and he's telling his disciples, this is how you must think of me. This is my true nature, this humble sacrificial life. This is how they have to think about Jesus. And today we see 
how they must behold Jesus. So we've been given how to think about Jesus, and now we must, we're going to be given how we must look at Jesus, how we must behold Jesus. So today's message is going to be a little less practical than other days because it's about how we see Jesus, how we look at Jesus. So I want you to, I want you to see that. I want you to behold the nature of Christ. And I want to show you that through our faith in Christ, he's transfiguring us into that same image. All right, let's read our passage. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning even for taking away the power for a little while and allowing us to sing and really hear each other's voices. What a gift that is. Thank you for this word that you have put before us this morning, and I pray that we would understand it. We would see this great treasure that is Christ. We would behold his nature and be changed by his nature. Every one of us be changed by who Christ is. Remove the fogginess from our eyes. And fall before our Savior and worship and trust, on him, trust in Him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's just a few times in the Gospels where Jesus prophesies something that's going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples. And here we are at one of them. This is the second one, actually, because Jesus has already told them that he would die, he would be killed, and he would be resurrected. So this is the second one. Verse 1, I'll read it to you again. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. So he's clearly saying, some of you standing here, of the twelve, and maybe more, will be alive, will be with me, when you see the kingdom of God coming in power. And there's all kinds of debate about what that means. 
But I believe that Jesus in this prophecy right here is talking about his impending transfiguration for a couple reasons. First, it's because of where this prophecy lands in the book of Mark. We have this revelation of Christ where he talks about himself suffering and dying, his, his first prophecy about that. So he's revealing something about himself in that, his self-denying humility. And then following this prophecy, we see Jesus revealed in a supernatural way. He's transfigured. So we have these two events. And this prophecy in chapter 1, verse 9 is a link between them two. So I believe that's one reason why Jesus is prophesying his impending transfiguration. And the second, or a second reason that I believe this is about the transfiguration is because of the humility of Jesus. So Jesus entered the world in the most humble means possible, as a baby, fully dependent on his parents, in a manger, needing his parents, the God of the universe, needing Mary and Joseph to change his diapers. You cannot get more humble than this. He lived in obscurity. He lived in poverty. He's surrounded by misunderstanding and resistance. And he's talking about how he's going to suffer and die. What could be more humble than this? What could be more unglamorous, right? Additionally, Jesus this whole time has been talking about how in him, In this one man, the kingdom of God has arrived. Remember the parable of the mustard seed that we looked at from Mark 4, verses 30 through 32. I'll read it. With what shall we compare the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make their nests in the shade. Jesus is the mustard seed in this parable. who was sown to the ground in humility and in obscurity and then when he dies, will grow and f- and produce fruit and fill the whole earth. And remember what, what Jesus said in John twelve twenty four: The seed must fall to the earth and die before it can grow and fill the whole earth and bear fruit. So Jesus is the kingdom of God in one man. He is the beachhead. And the kingdom will explode upon the earth after he dies, which is exactly what happened and what happens to this day. We live in this unheard of place called Utica in the middle of nowhere New York. We do. And here we are talking about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on some obscure mountain and we don't even know which one exactly. Right, so this Mustard seed, Christ, is growing and filling the whole earth. But that that humility that is Jesus, this one mustard seed, this tiniest of all the seeds of the earth, this one little seed, for a brief moment, is going to be unveiled in glory and power. The kingdom of God in this one man will be revealed in power. So that's why I think this prophecy is about the transfiguration. And then we have a little bit of time elapse. Let's look at verse 2. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Six days pass. They come to a mountain, and Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain for a new, a fresh revelation. But before we dive into that, I want to show you an apparent contradiction. People love to talk about contradictions in the Bible. So I'm going to show you a contradiction in the Bible, it would seem. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up a mountain to pray. And after that, he's transfigured. So Mark tells us we have six days. Luke tells us we have eight days. The Bible's con- contradicting itself. It's not inerrant. Here's an error. How can we trust anything? Right? Well, those critics are missing something way deeper than this surface level reading. Mark, as I've said, well, let me, Luke writes more historically. He's a physician, he collects facts, he's writing more factually, more historically. So it probably is eight days that actually occurred between these sayings and the transfiguration. But Mark writes, as I've told you from the very beginning of the book, Mark writes according to theme. He's not concerned with historical facts and compiling the book in chronological order. He writes according to theme. And so what he is doing is drawing this powerful parallel between two events, two events that are meant to mirror one another. This parallel, this parallel is between Jesus and Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, and over and over and over again, Jesus is reenacting the history of Israel, Remember, remembering that, knowing that, what we've just read, look at Exodus 24, 16. I, if you miss the parable, you're blind. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, Six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This is what Mark is doing. He's not trying to give us a fact. He's trying to draw this parallel. So he's showing us this correlation. After six days, and therefore on the seventh day, the same amount of time that God spoke to Moses out of the cloud is when God speaks to the disciples from the cloud. Jesus is again reenacting the history of Israel. He's reenacting the history of Moses. So we see it's not a contradiction, but a picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is more than Moses. Moses received this this revelation on Mount Sinai, and the people are afraid. They're terrified. They don't even want to get near the mountain. They say, please don't make us go near the mountain because we know we will surely die. So Moses receives the revelation out of the cloud and the people are terrified. After disciples receive the revelation that they hear from the cloud, they too are terrified. But Jesus is there to lift them up off of their feet and to comfort them and to walk with them. Moses gave the law Jesus gives freedom and joy in the Spirit. Moses led them to a a promised land, but that promised land was passing away, and today it is no more. 
Jesus leads us to an eternal, unending, everlasting promised land. You see, Moses is more, or Jesus is more than Moses. And on the seventh day, Jesus takes them up the mountain and he is transfigured. He's in verses, the end of two and, and verse three. And he's transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew adds in his gospel that Jesus' face was shining. Jesus' body begins to emanate light. His clothes begin to shine with this brilliant white light, whiter than anything on earth. And Peter, James, and John could compare it to. Literally, it says no launderer on earth could bleach something this white. They're just grasping at words here. How can we capture how brilliantly white this white is? And and they're failing at it. It's a supernatural, brilliant white light. A white light of extreme purity. Nothing on earth can produce this white light. No laundry mat. And it's the most important thing to understand about this change is that the nature of Jesus is not changing before the disciples. The nature of Jesus is not changing. Rather, his appearance is transformed to reveal his true nature. This is truly who Christ is, and his appearance changes to show it. His divine nature is being unveiled before their eyes. The kingdom of God is, is being revealed in power. And then suddenly, there are two more people there. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses. What are they doing here? What's significant about these two? Well, Moses and Elijah are both types. They represent a greater revelation of God. Moses represents God's revelation to Israel through the law. Elijah represents God's revelation to Israel through prophecy. Moses, law, Elijah, prophecy. You know, when the law of God demanded something if you wanted to establish a matter legally or in court, you needed two witnesses to establish a matter. Moses and Elijah are functioning as two witnesses. The matter that they are establishing is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, two witnesses saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Both have pointed always to the Christ that was to come, to the Messiah, And listen to what Jesus says about himself in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Moses and Elijah, these two witnesses, are there to testify that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They're both talking to Jesus. And the way that that the Greek is ordered here, it signifies that they are subordinate to Jesus. Their attention is on Jesus. They're talking to Jesus. So they 
are subordinate to Jesus. They have always been pointing to Jesus. Their relationship right now in this transfiguration event is they're pointing to Jesus. Their attention's on Jesus. The law and the prophets throughout time, their attention was always on Jesus, pointing to Christ. (laughs) And then it appears that Peter goes ahead and he sticks his foot in his mouth. Let's read verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Oh, Peter. You know, we like to think of Peter as someone who regularly does stick his foot in his mouth and kind of, you know, what, why would you even say this right now? But actually, let me suggest something different here. Peter is making a very reasonable request for what's happening in front of his eyes. First of all, the tents that he's talking about are not tents that are made out of fabric. I'm going to take them backpacking, that's for sure. The Greek word skane for tent is better rendered booth or tabernacle. Booth or tabernacle. God gave the Israelites a number of festivals in the Old Testament. One of these festivals, Sukkot, is the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. The Feast of Booths. It was a seven-day festival. See, we've got seven days happening here. This was a seven-day festival. It was, when, it was at the end of the harvest when the last of the crops were being gathered in and the Jews would make booths or, or mini tabernacles out of the four species of trees. The four species. Myrtle, citron, willow, and date. They would make booths out of these. They would eat in them and sleep in them. They'd be able to look through the roof and see the stars. They were basically exposed to the elements. But it's a time in living in these booths temporary, temporarily. It was a time to remember Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years when they lived in tents. But more profoundly than that, it was a time when they remember when God dwelled with man in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke and he rested on the tabernacle. He dwelt with man. He tabernacled with man. John 1 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt. That word in the Greek is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us. So this God in Christ more profoundly than booths and tabernacles, has come to his people to live with them once again. So Peter's suggestion about building tents is not unreasonable. It's a great suggestion, actually. It also shows that he's a fairly pious Jew. He's kind of saying, let us remember this glorious, amazing event that's blowing my mind right now and I'm terrified, but let us remember this because the glory of God is here with man. Let us erect some tents, some booths, some tabernacles. And yet we know that there's an element of error here, right? Because why else would Mark write, they didn't know what to say. So something is misfiring here. Verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
So they're terrified. Nothing on earth could have prepared them for this incredible display of glory right before them. It's completely outside of their realm of experience. Like, this is an interdimensional experience right here. It's, it's blowing their minds. It's supernatural. But the problem is that when Peter suggests that they make three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, he's essentially lowering Jesus to the level of Peter or to the level of Moses and Elijah. He's equating the three. That's the problem. They're not equals. And it is at that exact moment when something far more terrifying happens. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. I say it's more terrifying because in Matthew it tells us that at that moment, Peter, James, and John fell to the ground with their faces in the dirt when they heard the voice. Just as on Sinai, God speaks out of the cloud. And what God says from the cloud, what the Father says out of the cloud should remind you of another time. The baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In Mark 1.11. But, I don't know if you caught that, there was a major difference between what God said at Christ's baptism and what God the Father says on the mountain of transfiguration. Major difference. At the baptism, Jesus is the one who's being addressed. You are my beloved son. On this mountain, it's the disciples who are being addressed. This is my beloved son. At the transfiguration, the Father is addressing the disciples. And then he says, listen to him. Listen to him. So you can see that this entire transfiguration event, the whole thing is happening for the sake of the disciples. Peter, James, and John. This whole thing is happening for them. That they would see that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That Christ is elevated into a category far above Moses and Elijah, the Son of God. That they would know Jesus as the Son of God. Not that Jesus being the Son of God does not in any way mean that he was created, that he was born. It means that Christ was God from before time began into eternity past. But that God stepped down from heaven and in humility took on the form of man, was begotten as a man, the begotten Son of God. So now, more than ever was possible with booths and tabernacles, the Son of God, God, has come to dwell bodily with man. And so he is being revealed, fully revealed as the Son of God in this. Even the Father speaks this reality. But you've got to realize, you have to know, that the disciples are not coming to this conclusion. They're not understanding this reality because of their own powers of reasoning. Because they've deduced it. 
They could not have deduced this. This is a revelation that comes straight from the Father, God. No human accomplishment can bring any person to this understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. You cannot work yourself into understanding this. Only God reveals God. The truth of Jesus is impossible apart from divine revelation. And then as suddenly as the transfiguration began, it's over. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So I, I picture Peter, James, and John on the ground. Their faces are in the dirt. They're, they're trembling in awe because they've just witnessed a little taste of the glory of God. They've, they're scared like they've never been before. And then everything suddenly gets quiet. But they are so overcome by the glory of God that they are unable to stand. They are unable to stand in his holy presence. And that, that's how it is for every single one of us. Every person is sinful. Every person is wicked. And when in the presence of an infinitely holy God, we cannot stand. Exodus 33 says that if you see God, surely you will die. So everything gets quiet for the disciples. And after a moment, they must lift their heads to see what's going on. And the glory of the cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. The brilliant white light is gone. Everything vanished. Only humble Jesus is standing there. Only Jesus is left. And we learn from Matthew's account that Jesus comes to these three on the floor, on the ground, trembling, and he says, Rise and have no fear. Jesus brings the disciples to their feet. Jesus allows the disciples. He gives them the strength to stand. They are bewildered and terrified, but Jesus is with them. He comforts them. They must depend on him to stand. They must depend on him to continue walking on this path to the cross. And this is what should happen for every one of us when we are gripped by the gospel. When it finally takes hold of our soul, and I don't just mean initially at the moment of conversion, if you want to call it that. I mean every moment that the gospel grips a hold of you, you should, the, the feeling that comes over you is how inadequate you are, how inadequate you are, how utterly sinful you are before the holy God, and how amazingly and perfectly and infinitely holy he is. These two realities come into focus when you're gripped by the gospel and, and it's undoing, it undoes you. And all you can do is look up and see Christ saying, do not fear, rise. That's the Christian life. Overcome by the holiness of God and our sinfulness, being lifted to our feet by Christ who carries us. You know, in this moment, Moses and Elijah are no help to the disciples. They're gone. Even the Father isn't offering comfort here. Christ alone. And he doesn't expect the disciples to walk this path of suffering and self-denial by themselves. He walks it with them. He leads the way for them. He is by their side the whole time. And listen to what happens. This, this amazing promise for us 
as we depend on Jesus to walk this path with us. The promise is that you, as sinful and humble as we are, will be transfigured into that same image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Transformed into that image. Transformed is the same Greek word as transfigured. We are being transfigured into the image of Christ. How? It's not by accomplishment. It's not by working. It's by looking at Him. It's by beholding His glory. Look at Him. Look at Him. The Spirit of God is accomplishing the work in you, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. So look at Christ. And what must you do to look at Christ? Open this up. Open this up and look at Jesus, the Word of God. The Word became flesh. Behold Him. Look at His justice and His mercy on, self, on, on display. Look at His selfless, sacrificial life. His compassion and His love. And as you do that, as you read these words, you're beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we look and see, hopefully and savor, we're seeing His worth and His value. It produces in us a joy that that most valuable reality in all of existence, relationship with Jesus Christ, is ours, freely given. And so it produces joy out of us that's uncomparable. And things begin to change. Things begin to happen. His compassion begins to become our compassion. His sense of justice becomes our sense of justice. His devotion of, to God the Father becomes our devotion to God. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. We're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And he will continue this transformation, however slowly it may seem, until the day that this body dies and you're given a new body, fully transformed. And he brings the work to completion. And you will shine with a, a brilliant light that nothing on earth could produce. What hope that we've been given in Christ. Our requirement is to behold the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Christ. And God will transform us into that image. But this transformation... For the disciples and for us, it needs to be preceded by something else, which we're reminded of in verses 9 and 10. And they were coming down the mountain. He, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So this is, as I've said before, this is Jesus' final command to silence. We don't hear it anymore in the book of Mark. But this one, it's different from all the rest because it's conditional. They must stay silent until Christ has risen from the dead. So it's clear that the disciples are still not understanding something. 
They've just seen the glory of the Son of God revealed before their eyes, but they're, n- they're still not seeing it clearly. When Mark writes that they kept the, the matter to themselves, it's a little more intense in the Greek. It, it means something more like they didn't like what was being said, so they quashed it. They repressed it. Not they respected what Jesus said, and so they kept the secret. It's like they didn't like what Jesus was saying, so they pressed it down. Right after they had just heard God, the Father, speak out of the glorious cloud and say, listen to him. They heard it, but they didn't hear it, right? They quashed it. Because Jesus knows, he's he's commanding them to silence, because he knows that the transfiguration is not enough to understand who Jesus is. It's not enough to understand the, the nature of Jesus. It's like, It's like when Moses went to that high vantage point and looked over the promised land and he saw it from a distance. But he never entered it. That view could not give Moses the experience of what it was like to live in the promised land. That's what this transfiguration is like here. You're seeing the nature of Christ, but you're not able to enter into it. They were not able to enter into it. So he commands them to silence. And then Peter asks a very interesting question. It almost seems out of place. Verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Yeah, they they had just seen Elijah, but this question is more than that, is way more than that, because Peter's learned something now. He's learned not to directly rebuke Jesus. So he tries a slightly more subtle tack. This question is meant as this, a bit of a sly rebuttal to all of this death and resurrection talk that he doesn't like. So the book of Malachi, the last Old Testament book that was ever written, it is about the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. And two things happen. Elijah comes before this great and terrible day of the Lord. He will bring restoration to Israel. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. And he will precede this terrible judgment that will befall Israel. Peter is beginning to recognize something amazing and terrible. Peter is beginning to recognize that the events surrounding him, the events that have been surrounding Jesus all of this time, are the events leading up to the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's beginning to understand that what's written in Malachi is unfolding before his eyes. But not clearly. He's not understanding it clearly. You know, Mar- or, or Jesus came out of the desert out of the wilderness, his 40-day temptation to begin his ministry. And this is what Jesus said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The, that's the same thing as saying, the end of the age is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. So he's beginning to realize what that means. And he asks this question because he's not seeing clearly. He asks the question. It's a leading question which essentially says if Elijah Elijah is going to come and he's going to restore all things to Israel, 
Why does the Messiah need to die? That's ridiculous, Jesus. If Elijah's going to restore all things, why on earth would the Messiah need to die instead of claiming victory? He's trying to insinuate once again that Jesus has it all wrong. But Jesus answers a little more pleasantly this time, yet with the same strength and conviction as before, verses 12 and 13. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So first, Jesus affirms that Peter is right. You're right. Elijah must come first. Yes, the day of the Lord approaches. Yes, you're correct about that. But the way you're thinking about Elijah is ultimately incorrect. The Son of Man must suffer. And if the Son of Man must suffer, as he has been saying, as Jesus has been saying, as Isaiah 53, among many other prophecies, have been saying, if he must suffer, then why also would Elijah not suffer? If the greater one must suffer, then why wouldn't the lesser one suffer? So according to prophecy, Elijah will come, and he will bring restoration to suffer, and then he will suffer. And then the Messiah will come and suffer also. And then Jesus drops the bomb. He drops a bomb on them. Elijah has come. The Elijah that would precede the day of the Lord has already come. Matthew 17, 13 adds this comment at the end. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The Elijah that was prophesied to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord has come in John the Baptist. He came with the spirit of Elijah. He was the Elijah to come, and they killed him. They did whatever they wanted to him, just as the prophecy had said. A lot of people today are looking for Elijah to come. Jesus said he has come. Why are we still looking? When Peter rebuked Jesus in chapter 8, Jesus followed by talking about his suffering. And then he talked about how his disciples must also suffer through self-denial. He would take up their cross and deny themselves. So this subtle rebuke of, of Peter's, this way to say to Jesus that you've got it all wrong, is followed by this, with, the same, uh, with the same answer. The Messiah will suffer. The Messiah will die. But this time, the suffering of the disciples, the suffering of the followers of Christ is a little more subtle. It's, it's implied. John the Baptist suffered. The Elijah that was to come. Christ the Messiah will suffer. Through this entire account, the, the disciples are being led by Jesus. They're being led to Caesarea Philippi. They've been wandering around for six days. They've been led up the mountain. They've been lifted to stand. They've been led down the mountain. They are on the same path as Jesus. This whole time, this is the on the way. They are on the way with Jesus. To what? To Jerusalem. 
to the cross. Jesus' road to the cross is their road to the cross. Beginning to see this come to focus much more profoundly. Christ denied himself. These disciples must also deny themselves. And when we are transformed into that same image of Christ, that means not just all the good things, not the the shining and the glory, it means the self-denial as well. He's transforming us into this same image of self-denial and sacrifice. We behold his love, we behold his compassion and his justice and his goodness. And it leads us to deny ourselves. And this beauty of what all of that is, the beauty of his goodness and his glory and his value, the beauty of his self-sacrifice and his death, can only be seen through the lens of the cross. That's why they couldn't talk about it. They had not yet seen the cross. But do you know something? The cross and the resurrection have happened. Therefore, there is no longer a command to silence. Implication? Speak. Now is the time to speak. Now is the time to tell people about the glory of the Son of God. That in the face of infinite holiness, your sinful nature is undone is destroyed except that Christ, if you look to Christ, he causes you to stand. He brings you to your feet and transfigures you into his image. For us who believe, let us behold our Savior that he would accomplish this work in us as he accomplished it in the disciples. Let us be humble and deny ourselves as he did. If Jesus, who was perfect, absolutely perfect, if he denied himself, how much more should we who are sinful? Not because of this is a law, not because you're mandated to do this or else, but because we love our Jesus and we want to be like our Jesus. We want to stand in the presence of God and know what it's like to experience true and lasting joy in the presence of God. So as we behold the glory of Christ on the cross, in light of the empty tomb, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. First, the glory of humility and self-denial. Later, the glory of radiance and perfection. Ultimately, you and I we behold the glory of God this is amazing you will be transformed into the same image that the disciples saw that day on the mountain same image let's pray there is nothing that any one of us has done that would deserve this The image that we bear for ourselves is one of a corpse and death, an abomination before you. 
as we worship our own pleasures and our own self. But thank you, Father, that you have chosen to see fit to say to us, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Thank you that you have spoken that into our hearts. I pray that we would behold it and know it in light of the cross. This reality would become our reality, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. This work that you've started in us, Father, bring it to completion, to that day when we will stand in your presence, radiating like the Son of God because of you, because of your revelation and your work at us. Lift our eyes to behold the beauty of our Savior and his promises. It's in his name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that we trust and that we pray these things. Amen.